recording in progress. Hello, Scott. How you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good, Tara. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're finally talking. I know. It's really cool. We talk so much on, uh, you know, Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. It's really cool to be able to do this in person. Well, as much in person as we can be. Right, right. And I'm sorry that I had to cancel before. So we got delayed quite a bit. All good. You know, things happen. (laughs) So how are you doing so far, like through the whole crazy pandemic? I'm okay. I don't know. Um, I mean, we've managed to stay healthy. So that's awesome. We've, you know, we've been super, super precautious about everything. And you know, got our vaccines and we still hand sanitize incessantly and we don't really yep. do a whole lot of running around, but we never did really anyway. So that's kind of neither here nor there, but uh, yeah, we're hanging in there. My son went back to school this week. Wow. Uh, he did all of fourth grade at home and the end of third grade at home. So this is his first week back into in-person school. So that's been fun. Right. Um, but yeah, but what about you? How's it him? Um, to do yeah um well basically uh i've been i work at uh sony music that's what my day gig is so like i do that um i live in woodstock new york area um met my wife uh many 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 moons ago in new york city we both were in new york city at the time and we had children in the New York City area, decided to move back upstate because she's originally from here, wanted to have children up here, not really in the New York City yeah. area. And we did that, we moved up here. And, um, and so we have two children. I have a daughter that's 12, Nico. I have a son, 17, Shane. And um, when the pandemic hit, uh, they were like, take your laptop and just work at home. So that's what I did. And that was in March of 2020. And I've been up here ever since not having to go any farther than a one room away and been online doing everything, which has been really amazing and great because the travel was out of control. Um, Going to the New York City area, I'm like 90 miles away from New York City. So like I would have to basically go back and forth. So it was kind of crazy. So once once COVID hit and being up here, you know, our family got even more close together, yeah. you know, unit, which was really nice. Um, but in November, my son got COVID. And um, yeah, so he he thinks he got it from school. Um, he was in a hybrid. So they did a hybrid thing. So, the, so for the kids, they basically were like, okay, you know, we're taking, everyone's going home, everyone's doing everything online, which was like similar with what happened with you. Um, yeah. They're doing everything online. They're fine with it. It worked out for them. They they were doing really well with it. Obviously, it's hard with the friend, no friends, and yeah. you know we were doing everything, masking up, and you know following the protocol and all that other stuff. And um, and then when my son got it, um, unfortunately in November, it took almost seven days to get the tests back. So oh when they God. got yeah, because New York State was so over flooded with everything. Right. So. Um, seven days, uh, you know, he had chills and a little bit like that. He kind of felt, you know, we definitely knew that something was up. You know, he, he lost his sense of taste and smell and all that. And once he did, once that happened, you know, we had him tested seven days later, they're like, okay, you're positive. Freaked us out. We're like, oh my God, this is crazy. Right. Is he going to be okay? And of course he was fine. But um, 
we got tested the next day and found out my daughter was asymptomatic, but it was a rapid test. So you don't know whether or not the rapid test is 100% or not. Um, but we quarantined and luckily we have enough space to where they were upstairs, we we're downstairs. Me and my wife didn't get it, which was amazing. Um, and we were right next to you know my son the whole time. We hug him, we're hanging out with him, watching movies and doing the whole thing. And it didn't affect us luckily, but we quarantined, did the whole quarantine thing. And, um, and now, you know, the Delta is happening and this is some new crazy stuff. And uh, I was just in New York City yesterday um, visiting my old friend, um, yeah, we're old, she's old, we're old. We have known her since, you know, uh, I was 20 and I'm 53 now. So we've known each other a real long time. And um, so it was a birthday week. So we went to go see Guns N' Roses at a giant stadium. Uh, originally saw them in 87 and the whole climb when they played the clubs and, yeah. you know, no one really knew who they were yet. And then they blew up and, but it was, um, it was fun to see her. But, um, you know, traveling to New York City is, you know, challenging because, I mean, we're still doing the whole thing with the masks and everything and watching the variant. And um, some people are in the subway with no masks, which is kind of ridiculous. They're not following the protocol. You know, I saw people riding the subway totally had no mask on at all. Um, you know, walking in the streets, another thing, but like taking public transportation and being right, indoors. Closed. Yeah, you have to, you have to follow, follow it. So, you know, there's a whole, everything that's going on with the news and the conspiracy theory people. And, you know, it's just like the vac vaccinations are not high enough yet in the United States. We're going through a lot of craziness. You see a lot of the um, different, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, different states going through some craziness because right. of, you know, the variant and because of, you know, the lack of will to get vaccinated and stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's crazy, oh, but yeah, but we're getting through it. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. So when your son was sick, um, did he just kind of have moderate symptoms? He didn't get yeah. like really, really sick. No, he had, he had, um, no fever, lost its sense of taste and smell, um, a little bit of chills and that was it. Um, but we're all completely vaccinated. My daughter's 12. She got vaccinated the minute that it got approved. Um, up, up in the up in the Woodstock area, there's a local apothecary that has been great and they've been vaccinating people. And I actually, me and my wife volunteered for the apothecary to be able to get our vaccines earlier, you know, because it took some time for people that yeah. are under 60 to get it. Right. So, you know, so we, we did it and uh, feel good about it. But, you know, we have to just you know, take the right protocol and see what's going to happen going forward. You know, we have no indication for schools at all right now um, in, in what's going to happen with going back. There's no CDC or state um, recommendation or anything at all. So like the schools are just preparing like, look, no more online schooling. You're going to have to go and then I'll have to adjust and see whether or not they do masks or not. I'll have to see, you know. Yeah, so at Dirk's school, they did still have online as an option for people, but he had been home for so long that we felt like it would be in his best interest to go back, at least unless things get crazy again, and then we'll bring him back home. But, you know, he's very um, good about wearing his mask. He doesn't, he, it, it, it doesn't bother him at all. So he couldn't good. care 
about wearing a mask and he's really like he knows about not touching his face and you know he does his hands with sanitizer all the time and stuff so i'm not worried about him but his his school doesn't require masks right now and he said only him and one other kid in his class are wearing masks i mean there's other kids in the school doing it but in his specific class it's only him and one other kid and we're just like just keep doing your thing man you know none of us I don't understand this aversion to masks because like, I mean, maybe because I'm sort of an introvert anyways. So it's almost for me, it's kind of like wearing sunglasses where it's like an extra layer of protection between me and other people, but also like boundary wise. Totally. Totally. Actually mind it. And plus it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about putting any kind of makeup on like I don't know I don't it doesn't bother me at all I mean right. it kind of sucks here because when it's 110 degrees outside it's a little hot but yeah um I mean who sure. cares I don't know it doesn't bother me right I don't understand why people are so up in arms about it it's so ridiculous to me I know like, I agree got people who have told me like it doesn't do anything anyways and it's like well, did you teach your children to cover their face when they sneeze? If exactly. so, why? Because you're if you if a, if you think a mask doesn't work to spread germs or snot or whatever, why did you teach them to cover your, their face? Because it's the same exact thing in principle, right? Right. It's just completely illogical. I don't understand it. I know there's there's a there's a lot of craziness too. With I remember like you know kind of going. I was like pretty much in the city area up until I was 39, 40 and did a lot of stuff in the city, a lot of going to concerts and a lot of playing music and stuff. And I just always remember as, even as a little kid, like even in the seventies or early eighties, like um, Asian people wearing masks in in wintertime um, because, and, and so, you know, it's like, it's, it's the aversion of not wanting to do that because of, where the virus originated from or is it that you're um just don't want to do something oh don't tell me what to do sort of thing contrary thing yeah it's weird um look i mean like you know kids can't go to school without the mmr shots exactly So, so like so why don't you want to get your kids vaccinated or why don't you want to be vaccinated i mean look they, you, if you watch the news, it's funny, like, um, you know, we watch the CNN stuff or whatever, and, you know, people like, oh, don't watch that or whatever. And, you know, getting addicted to news can be um, toxic and yeah, you don't want to, like, I didn't have it on in the house. We didn't have it on in the house around the kids when they were younger, you know, but now my daughter's 12. Now my son's 17, you know, they're, they know what's going on um, and stuff. And, um, you know, a lot, a lot of film that you see uh, about people being in the hospitals and the variant and stuff like that, you see that like a lot of people are like unhealthy anyway or immune compromised and, yeah. and they, they may take, the, var- they may take the, the, um, the vaccine and maybe it'll, you know, it's going to do something. It's going to help. It's going to help guard you. That's the thing. You don't want to end up dying from this, but you know, 
it, at the same time right now, it's like if, you know, the U.S. doesn't get vaccinated up to a certain percentage, then it's going to be a real, real and starting now to be a real problem. You look at the map of the U.S. and it's like, you know, all the states that are in here, like, are all red and like, you know, the, the it's all getting messed up. The numbers are going up or whatever. And um, I mean, for me, like, I have actually a friend who it's a me and my wife's friend who's a cancer doctor. And um, she actually showed us video from inside the ICU around April and May in Brooklyn. And it was like people were laying on the floors. There's no beds. It's like, it, it's so sad and horrible. But there wasn't a vaccine then, but right. there is one now. So it's like, well, you know, take it. I mean. Yeah, and I, I've seen like memes and stuff about, you know, there's countries that would just, people in countries that can't get the vaccine yet would, would do anything for it. I know. And people here just flagrantly disregarding it. And it's like, it's such a spoiled attitude. It is. And I mean, data doesn't lie. Numbers don't lie. You yep. can have theories and suspicions about, is it healthy? And, and it's understandable to be cautious. You should be cautious when you're putting something in your body. Absolutely. But like, data doesn't lie. Numbers aren't emotional. They're right. just numbers. So when you, exactly. when there's definitive numbers, but then again, people say that's a lie too, because everyone is so conspiracy theory minded and like everybody's out to get me and they're all lying and it's like no what like what would they have to gain by it like there's no logic to it oh it's so Not aggravating and like yeah. to your point about the mmr vaccine i mean like for my child to go to school we had to bring his vaccination records right and exactly. it, it's not a big deal you just do it it's not a big deal and I remember in Ohio when they passed the seatbelt law, people threw a fit about their fucking rights to not wear a seatbelt. Well, everybody wears a seatbelt now and they don't even think about it. It's like, okay, right. yeah, you do have the right to be stupid and not wear a seatbelt and fly through your windshield if that's your choice. True. So if you don't yep. want to take the vaccine and die, potentially die from COVID or infect somebody else that dies from it, that's your choice but it's a stupid choice straight up. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I know it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, like, yeah, uh, the whole thing about like, it's, it's this or it's that and that you're getting chipped and all this other stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just another health issue that, you know, the world has now. And I mean, I feel like that, like children, you know, are this new generation of, they have a little bit of a different immune system than we do. I mean, we're older as well, but like these, these kids are kind of built for this stuff. And it's like, and yeah. And, and I think that, you know, getting a vaccine is good for them too. Why not? But, you know, you notice that like the numbers, as far as children's concerned, I know it's going up now it's changing because the Delta, the Delta variant is like much more contagious and everything, but, mm -hmm. but still, you know, we need, we need to build your immune systems stronger to survive this stuff. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. So I, I rely on trusting people who are. Right. 
totally. You know, and I have so many friends who are like, well, I've done my research. It's like, no, you read some articles that somebody else did the research. Like, right. It's, it's not the same. And so it's, I don't know. It's just maddening to me. I don't, I don't understand the aversion to common sense, but right. here right. we are. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of people up by me, you know, that are, um, you know, in the Woodstock area, there are a lot of hippies that live up here or people that are hippie minded that are like, are like, oh, anti-vaxxers completely, like no MMR, no, no, you know, no chicken pox, nothing, you know, but like, if you want your kids to go to school, you know, unless you want to homeschool them, you're going to have to go and follow the rules. <laughs> yeah, you know? I know. And it's, it's like, Chances are high that their parents probably got them vaccinated because back right. in the day, people did what doctors recommended them to do. Right. You know what I mean? So I, it's, it's just such a strange thing to me. I don't get it. But yeah, I know. I think, I think also too, like not for everyone, but maybe some people um, haven't had anyone close to them get this. Yeah. Um, maybe they said it, it wasn't a big deal. Like they didn't get it severely. So it's like, oh, big deal. It's just like the flu, whatever, you know? Right. So they didn't see the impact of the people gasping for breath and having to say goodbye to their loved one through Horrible. a glass wall because they can't get in to see them. It's horrible. You know? Yeah. It's yeah, it's and the thing is, is that it's going to keep mutating to where it's going to just become very, very strong if, you know, and that's the thing is, is that now we have this variant and, you know, we have to get a booster and all this other stuff. But like, if we don't get up to that, you know, 70 plus or 80 plus or whatever it's going to be, it's going to keep mutating. And then, it, you know, that's going to be worse. And that's like, it's just a catch 22. You're going to be going around and around in a circle dealing with, you know, some other variant of this. So. So you mentioned your job um, had you working from home. Have you had to go back or are they going to allow you to continue at home? Yeah, um, it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, a lot of um, major um, companies are doing this whole thing where they were like, oh, yeah, maybe like after Labor Day. But it doesn't seem like that's going to happen now. Um, I think Amazon is not allowing anyone back until after 2022. Um, I've had no indication of anything. They talked maybe September, like I said, same sort of window. But um, some people that I talked to there are like, I don't know if we'll ever go back. And then maybe it'll be a cohort, you know, where it's like a couple days a week or whatever. Um, I'm good working online forever. I have no problem with that <laughs> at all. Um, I've been doing it. I've, been, I've worked permanently from home for, for almost 10 years now. So... Right. Nothing has changed for me as far as work goes, except for that my coworkers are all at home now too. But right. I just, I've always loved it. And then some people are really resistant to it. Like some people think they can't do it because they like that interaction or whatever. And then they've had to do it and now they love it. And they're like, oh my God, I don't want to go back. I'm like, I told you. <laughs> Fantastic. No, no, totally, totally. I mean, for, for me, uh, what I do, for my day job, um, I don't need to be in front of anybody. I mean, yeah. you know, it's all paper, it's all digital. So it's different. Like, you know, I also DJ too. So like what I do weddings and that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff I can't do from home. Yeah, you know, I have to be there to do it. Yeah. Um, 
but you know the day job thing um if you're pushing paper or you're doing things that are digital like that there's no reason why i mean it's more eco friendly anyway to be like at home no emissions all that kind of stuff and uh i'm i'm all for that i've been shooting i've been trying to you know get to work remote now for um a couple years now, three, four years or whatever. I mean, I've been up here since 2009, but when I first moved up here, I made a deal with the label that I worked for. I worked at EMI at the time and uh, my boss is cool. It's like, no, that's fine. You know, you're moving away, fine. You know, work a couple of days from home, a couple of days in the office. And I did that for a bunch of years and it was like very, very um, less stressful, felt better about it. Um, more comfortable. I didn't feel, I'm not the kind of person, I hate when I have that feeling of eyes behind my shoulder when I'm doing something. Like I'm, yeah, yeah I'm getting my job done. You don't need to watch me. I'm an adult, right. you know? <laughs> right. I don't need to be micromanaged. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you worked for EMI and now you work for Sony. So I work are for you, Sony. do you feel comfortable discussing what you do? Sure. Yeah, because um, I won't get too detailed about it. So, yeah, I actually do royalty audit. So basically, Ooh. you know, yeah. So I've been doing it since um, 1999. Um, I started at Arista Records and I worked there um, under somebody that brought me in because I were, I did a bunch of like finance work for my day job. I played music since I got out of high school, didn't go to school for music wanted to but went to work instead kind of started playing in bands in new york city did all that was signed on century media in the 90s and and all that and kept doing that sort of thing but always kind of kept a day job and i wanted to do something in the music industry because i felt like that i could kind of use my you know finance background and um that sort of thing, like a business minded sort of background um, and apply it to music industry. Oh, and so I started doing, I worked at Arista when um, Clive Davis was still there in the same building. You know, um, it was amazing to see like, you know, uh, Pink and Christina Aguilera would come in and you'd see them when they were newly signed. And, you know, the I was that guy that you know, bought vinyl at seven and eight years old with my allowance money and would look at the labels on the back and go, wow, wouldn't that be really cool to like work at a label someday or whatever in some capacity. And I remember interviewing at Arista and being in the waiting room, like in HR with all the posters up of all these famous people, like, you know, that were all signed at the, yeah. you know, back in the day and Clive Davis and everything. And just being such a fanboy of the whole thing of the whole music industry in general, um, just basically my mouth was on the floor and I was like, this would just be the best thing ever. And um, I got to work there and I moved to, I'm pretty much worked at every major label um, known to mankind. Uh, I always stayed there in part two that the benefits are really good. And so, um, you know, you work for like a Sony corporation, the ben benefits are really good because there's thousands of employees, you know? So I, I always, I really like the indie label mentality better, um, honestly, but um, you know, it's a day job when it comes exactly. down to it, you right. know? So I have to do something for a living. So yeah, so I started doing that in 99. I went to, from Arista. I worked at Arista, um, Universal, EMI, um, Warner, 
and then now um, Sony. That's cool. That's so really it's been kind of like all the people that stayed in it, like when the MP3 boom was coming, a lot of people got out because they were really scared and, you know, the industry was in a bad way. Yeah. And, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, people that stayed in the game five or six years, you know, now streaming is huge and the revenues went back up and it kind of like, right. you know, went this way or that way. And now, you know, the major labels are making a lot of money again. So when you do royalties, I assume all of that's new, like having to figure out royalties on streaming and all of that stuff also. Yeah, yeah, they're constantly changing language and, and uh, updating what they do. Um, but it's, uh, so basically it's like, it's royalty audit on the label side. So basically it's like the artist hires a CPA, they come in, they look at the royalty statements, it's contractual, they make claims and then you fight it out back and forth contractually. And then, you know, it's uh, number numbers too, but a lot of contractual interpretation. So and do you think instinctively want to side with the artist? <laughs> um, again, it's all, it's all contractual. So right. it, you know, know. it has to, it, it, it all really lays on that, but, um, but you know, all the labels are completely artist friendly. It's different than how it was 25 years ago or 30 years ago where, you know, it was, you know, and I've been on both sides, you know, as an artist and being, I signed on Century Media and I saw how it worked there, you know, and they're up and coming label. They didn't have Lacuna um, Coil yet, you know, and then they became this kind of blew up, you know, they became kind of like a big indie label. Um, Back when I was on it, you know, they just had, they had a handful of bands. It was like the mid nineties and, you know, they started going their direction. They have, you know, big distribution now and everything. Um, but uh, it, it, it is interesting to see both sides of it and, you know, how it, how all the components kind of work together. And uh, my idea was basically what I wanted to do was, you know, be able to read these contracts. So like, if I, if I got signed someday, I would know what I'm reading, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, but, it's, it's funny because as a musician, instinctively, I'm like, oh, the label. <laughs> I know. Right. No, I absolutely love the label we're working with right now. Like love, love, love. But it, it's funny how it's hammered into your head that like the evil major labels and, you know, there's such a stigma. Attached. I know. I mean, they're the bank. That's it. Right, right. You know, so, I mean, you have to just think of it, you know, at, from a business standpoint, you have to kind of look at it from that sort of mentality and say, look, you know, if I was, if I had a shitload of money, maybe I could do this on my own. And now, you know, with the internet and Instagram and TikTok and all these platforms, maybe you don't necessarily, and if you have a name, I mean, you, you know, you probably don't need the label anymore, you know? If you're, you know, a, a super act or whatever, but you know, a lot of them, a lot of the acts are still, you know, doing the advances and, you know, it's changed a bit, you know, the advances are not the same as they were and things are different, things have changed, you know. So but, do you think because of the way things are changed where um, an artist can have more control of their stuff that the major labels have been forced to be a little more artist friendly? Because yeah, they could yeah. say like, well, I don't need you. I can go release my stuff on my own and bypass all of this. Well, sure, I, sure, that, absolutely. But I also think though that from a major label standpoint, 
you have to look at it from what kind of artist you are, you know? And it's like, if you're like, say a goth artist or you're like, you know, um, an experimental artist of whatever genre you decide you like uh, and want to be involved in, whether it's avant-garde jazz or it's, uh, you know, um, I don't know, black metal or whatever, you know, it's like, then, you know, you can do that on your own. Sure. And you can get out there and you don't necessarily, you know, you, you have more of a say and you have control over everything. But, you know, if you are Dua Lipa, you know, and that's what you do and you're doing pop music um, and you want to have, you know, um, 250 million followers on uh, Instagram <laughs> or, or TikTok, then, you know, then you maybe maybe you need the label, you know, you need the distribution yeah. and you need to get out there and you need the machine behind you. And that's really what it is. It's it's always been like that. It's just now um, it's a, it's you know, it's it's, a, you know, very R&B and dance dance oriented and things like that. And they're not as much rock. You know, yeah. I mean, there are some bands that are starting to get signed. Uh, I don't know. Um, Big, big fan of Inhaler. And I, a lot of people know that I am, but Inhaler is Bono, Elijah um, Newson is Bono's son. And he has this new post-punk kind of influenced 80s thing. Vocals sound very, very similar to his dad's, but his vocals are very excellent. And they're pop, they're pop but they're rock and they have guitars going on. And you don't see that in pop music right now as much as it used to be, where it was like, you know, the genres, there, there was a rock genre in the 60s and the 70s through the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, going from like, you know, whatever, hair metal and guns, things that were on MTV, Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, you know, these are guitar driven music, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then you see that it, it fell off with, you know, all that stuff in the like the mid nineties, late nineties, things are starting to fall out. I mean, maybe there was like the strokes and things like that that were happening in the early two thousands, um, the killers and things, but like, you don't really see that so much right now where it's like, I think a lot of that other, that a lot of that stuff is kind of now on indies and, and kind of gone more that direction and stuff yeah. like that. So it's interesting to see, I live in the past since I do royalty audits. So it's like, we, I really, and what I do is the past artists. I, and I, I really enjoy doing them uh, more than the newer artists. So the newer artists, I don't really do those newer audits. I do only catalog artists. So I do Elvis Presley and things like that, which are like a lot of fun because oh, cool. you get to read these contracts and I know the catalog. I'm a huge Elvis fan since I've been a little kid. And uh, so I, it's easy for me to be able to go, oh yeah, I know where that song is. I remember what release it's on oh, or whatever, cool. you know? So yeah, that is cool. That is cool. We worked for a music and film distributor in Ohio back in, uh, let's see, when did we do 98, 99, 2000 era. And it was kind of fun because like you, it's like, you know, obviously we were musicians and stuff, but we also right. had to have jobs. So it was it like, at least, at least we were doing something that was music related. Right. And so it was kind of fun because we got to see all the new releases that would come in and right. all the old titles and stuff too. Like sometimes you would just find yourself down an aisle looking at records, you know? Yep. And it was kind of cool um, getting to do a lot of that stuff. And it, it's, it's funny though now, cause it was like the whole Britney Spears era. 
So like I can remember all of the releases that were huge because we would just pull boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of these releases. And they would have these huge pallets stacked up with just their releases on them and stuff. But um, yeah, and then like you said, the MP3 thing happened and not only did Lycia quit selling records, but like we lost our job there because there wasn't enough money to keep staff. So like they, they had to get rid of like 50% of the staff one day. And that's yeah. when Mike and I packed up and decided to move back to Arizona. But yeah. yeah, it was such a sad thing because we really loved working there because every, you know, a lot of musicians worked there. So we had right. that camaraderie also because it was kind of like a known thing. Like, yeah, let's go work at the music. You know, you got to have a job. Let's right. work at the music place. But um, yeah, that was a that was a good time. It was probably one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. A lot of that's really, really cool. people. And, that's uh, really cool. Yeah, I, I mean, God. It's funny because they later got out of the music business and they got into um, selling like sex toys and porn. Oh, really? So, yeah, I'm like, that would have been interesting had we stayed on and then had to switch over to doing sex toys. Right. I think hey, you know, gone now, but anyways, what, that was What ever sells, I guess, you know? No. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. You know? Um, it's funny because the people that owned the company were super conservative. So really? I can't even in my brain wrap around that that transition happened but right you're like who put that idea in their head all of a sudden yeah. like okay this is what we're gonna do now <laughs> yeah it's funny that's crazy yeah um a lot of people that i've met in the music industry in the major label scene are musicians there there are you know even even though even though um it's fine you know finance based like what i do uh, there are a lot of people that are, you know, they're musicians, they need a day job and they figure it out and they're like, okay, I'm going to work at the label and, yeah. you know, um, and, and it's, it's fun. I mean, like what I do right now is a little bit more outside the label because uh, kind of like how Sony is set up. It's like the finance department's not necessarily at the label where, um, Back, you know, when I worked at the other labels, like when I worked at Arista, it was all on one roof. When I worked at um, Warner, it was all on one roof. So, you know, you'd have like, uh, which was crazy, um, like Zach Holtzman would have an office and like, like, I'm a huge Doors fan, you know? So it's like, you'd see people like that around, you know, that were like old timers and like, you know, you have like these new kids that are like, you know, all into new music and they're like, you know, bright eyed, bushy tail, 21 or 24 or whatever. And they're all, yeah, I'm in the music industry or whatever, you know, and they'd be people walking by that they'd have no idea who they were. Right. And it's like, no, that's actually a legend walking around the office right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's which really is cool. cool so yeah as as a as a music geek and a fan and 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 you know growing up on mtv and yeah AM, you know am and fm radio um just you know being able to look at the vinyl or look at the releases yeah. when they came out and be able to get them and like you know i was able to get a lot of stuff for you know under cost and 
really helped build up my vinyl collection for um, Rhino and other things or whatever. So it's definitely fun. I mean, I got a lot of, uh, you know, Sisters of Mercy uh, re-releases and, you know, they have, uh, you know, there's 4AD. I was able to get some things there and, you know, so it's definitely cool, you know, to be able to get, you know, some Cocteau Twins and things. Yeah. So there's some some things there too. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a living, you know, it's something that I have to do during the day and at least it's music oriented. Which yeah, I mean, I would I much like. rather be doing that than what I'm doing for sure. At yeah, least I mean, it's, it's good. It's, it's definitely, you know, and then like I also, you know, I, I DJ weddings, I DJed in the city for a long time, like clubs and stuff like that. And then, you know, I had to figure out, okay, as an aging DJ, what can I actually do? To be able to make some money and um i you know i i tried uh, actually doing wedding djing in my early 20s mid 20s and i just i was just like no nah, i don't think this is for me you know it's like wedding band i feel like you know like that sort of thing and uh you know and I, and even recently like in the probably last maybe five or 10 years, I've had offers to play drums. I, that's like my main instrument, playing drums. Like in wedding bands, I have friends that are like successful at doing it and they do, you know, their 30 gigs a season and stuff like that. But I actually make more money DJing on my own. So I'm like, well, you know, I could be playing this Dua Lipa song on drums and get paid a third of what I get paid if I just push the button, click, <laughs> you know? But it's it's a lot, you know. But wedding DJing is is an interesting thing. It's very I, high stress. It's high stress. Interesting things. It's high stress and it's very linear. It's like um, if you, you have to kind of you have to be like, okay, here's the timeline, and I'm following the timeline in with you know wedding coordinators and making sure everything's good and making sure that the crowd's happy and stuff. And it just ends up being, and it's music oriented too, but it's not like, oh, like, hey, let me turn you on to this new thing. And you know, right. it's not like that. Right. That's cool though. I mean, I'm sure that's, I'm sure you've got some probably interesting stories about weird shit that's gone on at some weddings. I can imagine. Absolutely. I mean, I've been doing it up here in the Woodstock area since 2013. So it's been some time. Yeah. Um, definitely. And I do like about anywhere between like 20 and 25 or so a year. And it's, wow. it's good. It's good. But you know, it's like, am I doing a five day, five days a week? And then sometimes now that, you know, 2020, everything got canceled. And then now everything moved to 2021. So like everything up until now, up until probably almost August time has been double booked. So I'm like, I'm like working five days and then working Saturday, Sunday. And it's been, it's kind of crazy. It's great. Um, but now things are starting to cancel due to the variant. So like all of a sudden things are starting to move a little bit the other direction. So it is interesting. Yeah, I do have some crazy stories about uh, people getting too drunk and wanting to, uh, you know, get physical and uh, angry and, um, Sometimes, Karen. huh? Some Karens. Yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of people. I mean, look, it's like I I don't you know I'm there to do a service, which is like I'm there to entertain and make sure that you got you know the wedding party's happy, the bride and groom are happy. You know, it's what you want. I'm not there to entertain myself. I'm there to make sure that you're you're having a good time and all that. 
but yeah, but there are people that, you know, they get too drunk and then they want to, they want to DJ, you know, it's like, well, no, I'm doing this. And so it's, you know, I, I have to smile a lot, you know, yeah. put on so a happy face. You ever get people requesting really, really weird stuff. And I say this because we, that music distributor that I worked at, they had this big Christmas party one time and they had, they hired a DJ and me and my friends are so stupid. So we were like requesting all this weird stuff, but um, we requested Convoy. You remember that song Convoy? Of course, yeah. And we're just dying laughing because the guy played it for us and stuff. And <laughs> like to me, I, I'm that person that wants to request the weirdest shit that I can think of just to right. get weird people out or whatever. Yeah. It has to, I, I, I basically, I mean, I benchmark it. I, I mean, of course I always say like, Hey, um, is it okay if, uh, people ask me for requests? And usually they're like, you know, couples are like, yeah, totally. That's totally fine. But I also tell them too, if, if your theme of your dance party is going to be um, Beyonce and Pitbull and things that are dance oriented, you know, because it's a dance party. And someone asks me for, you know, White Zombie. Now, I love White Zombie, but I'm not going to play White Zombie for you because it just does not work. Everyone's going to, it's like the needle, like, shit. Yeah. And people are like, what? How? <laughs> and but I've I've done uh, there was one wedding that I did a few seasons ago was the people were super cool, a lot of punk rockers, a lot of goths, and I was you know the dance floor was like the Smiths and the Cure, yeah. and I like that you know like if I can do that and then I like the closing, you know the closing song they had was Monstrous Clock from uh, Ghost, so I was like that's interesting you know like um, that's obviously more up my alley and more fun and, and stuff, but I can just as easily do a seventies disco wedding, all five hours of disco. I have no problem doing that, but, but, for, but for me, more, more annoying, you know, wedding after wedding is the same old dance right. music that's played. And I'm like, okay, here we go again. I know that, you know, timber goes into, you know, uh, I love it in, you know, and these songs that are like these contemporary dance songs that people, they love it. And the crowd's like dancing, they're up and they're doing yeah. it. You know, that's that. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not my, it's not my position to, to call out whether or not it's cool or not. I'm not there to like, you know what I mean? You, you know, you want, you know, you want to hear like the, you know, the safety dance over and over and over again, five times in a row. No problem. <laughs> you know, I'm getting the same, you know, it's like, I'm not there to judge, you know, I'm like Pandora, basically, I'm like, okay, you know, you like this, you like that, and then I'll play a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and make sure the crowd pleasers are there and stuff, you know, and, uh, and then sometimes people are like, you know, asking me for, they're like, oh, no, we don't want the chicken dance and then like they get drunk off their ass and they're like, can you play the chicken dance. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting for sure. Um, but yeah, it's uh, something else that I do for money, you know? Yeah. No, I love it. So yeah. you mentioned that you were in New York City, you know, in the 90s and whatever. So yeah. I'm assuming that you probably hung out in the clubs that we played in. Now, I'm Absolutely. not saying you were at my show, but I'm sure you were like downtown. What was that place called? Downtime? Where Down the back 
was. Yep. Yeah. In Limelight. Downtown. Downtown. Yep. Downtown. Yeah. 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 We played there. I I want to say twice, but it might have been three times. But you uh, guys were you guys were on tour with Typo too, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, and you did like Limelight or something, right? We we, we played Limelight on the Fourth of July. I think it was nineteen ninety five, mm -hmm. and we headlined that one. But we played Roseland Ballroom with Typo. That's awesome. That I amazing. saw Typo. I did not see you guys, and I wish I did. But I saw Typo with Danzig and Godflesh. And Godflesh, oh, God. I know you love Godflesh. Um, yeah, Godflesh opened, and it was um, on Selfless. I they had, they had uh, Brain playing drums. It's like one one time they had like the live drummer. Um, but I went to go see Godflesh because I love Godflesh, and I saw. The first time I saw Godflesh was with my wife and my very, very good friend, Tammy Shapiro, who was with last night. I've known forever. We went to go see Godflesh um, on Pure and Monster Magnet opened right around Super Judge period. I'm a huge Monster Magnet fan. I saw Monster Magnet, like they're from the New Jersey area. So um, I saw them open for Mud Honey um, in a New York City club probably 89 or 90 and wow. a friend of mine was really into monster magnet i was like i had no idea who they were sure. and she put all on the sub pop stuff and all the you know the new new grunge stuff she like new allison chains and those bands and so she you know she was like oh you know these guys are great and i'm like i watched them and i was like wow i, I don't know and and then I went out and I bought Spine of God and I just fell in love with that record. And uh, and then I went to go see them. They're probably like the, the biggest band, like the, the most I've ever seen any 90s band in the 90s was them. I like saw them probably like 25 something times. But anyway, they opened for Godflesh and we were tripping on mushrooms. And it was like, I was tripping so hard when Godflesh were on and I'm, I, I'm a huge fan of Pure is amazing and uh, and Street Cleaner too. I love those records. Um, and the new newer record that came out recently is really good too. Um, but it was really amazing to see them. Um, oh, I can't imagine. They were great. They were great. Yeah. But I went to go see Godflesh with um, with Typo and uh, and Danzig because I wanted to go see Godflesh. Like I didn't. I saw Danzig on the uh, saw Danzig for the when he did Sam Hain yeah. in '86, and then I saw when Danzig did hit the first record. They played the Ritz a couple times. The first time I went, the second time I went. So I was like, yeah, you know, I was kind of like, I love the first Danzig album, but like, I'm like, I'm not really too much of a fan of Lucifuge and the other records. But you know, Godflesh opened for Typo and and uh, Danzig, and I'm like, I have to go. I want to check all of them out anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Typo was great. You know, and uh, I actually met Pete um, one time, a couple times, but um, my friend. And who I was in this band Vissaria with, uh, who was on Century Media, um, he is now in Carnivore AD, and he's like doing the Pete oh. Steele thing. Yeah, and um, he knew he knew because like Pete's like from you know the hardcore scene in New York City yeah, and yeah. Brooklyn, and so my friend who I was in this band with, who's now in you know Carnivore AD, knew Pete really well, 
And so uh, one time at the limelight, Pete was just hanging out and he was, the, we were all there. So I got to meet him. He was super cool and chill, super nice guy. No attitude. Not like, at all. No attitude at all. No, no, like, I'm Pete Steele. It wasn't no. like that at all. It's like, hey, man, you know, it's just Gosh, a real, really nice. Yeah, super he's nice. I know, I know that, um, I know that he was a, a huge fan of you guys. Yeah, it's so weird because, I mean, I don't like that fan word because it makes me uncomfortable, but he, he was such a good, he was very, very good to us. Very yeah. good. And just such a sweet guy. And, you know, of course it's super, it, it's hard to even imagine that he's not here. Like, I know. someone like that just go away you know it's very yeah. strange so i saw typo sort of by accident also um it must have been 1990 or 91 um in cleveland we went to see the exploited and so cool. it was exploited biohazard and typo negative i didn't know anything about biohazard and i had never heard of typo negative but it stuck in my head because Typo played first, and when they came out, it was just like, holy cow, like, first of all, I'm only like five foot two, so anybody taller than like five foot six is like a giant to me, but they're, they're all, they were so huge, and they all have this like long black hair and stuff, and right. at the time, I was like, I listened to like some punk stuff, like I liked Exploited and Junk like that, but I, I mostly listened to like The Cure and Suzine the Banshees and Bauhaus and that kind of stuff. Right. So I didn't really know anything about that world for the most part. And I just remember being like, wow, they're all really, really tall with really, really long hair. Right. <laughs> it's stuck in my mind. And then like, you know, of course, fast forward a few years and uh, Peter got in touch with Mike to see if we wanted to go do that tour and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, that's that band that I saw play in Cleveland like a million years ago. And I right. remember telling Josh that I saw them on that tour and his response was, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. They're just, they're such sweet people. Like they're just such good, actually good people. And like you said, like there's no ego at all. And None. You know, you know this from being in a band and being around musicians and stuff. So many people are their own biggest fan. And it's so off-putting because it's just, it's gross to me. And so yeah. when you meet someone who's had like real, true, actual success, and they're so like self-deprecating and there's no ego to it at all. It's just like some people need to learn a lesson like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of that, too, is is that um, it's almost like new money, like people that, come, you know, like old money. It's like there a lot of times people like, oh, yeah, we've had it forever, you know, and then new money all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's all about the Benjamins and that whole like it thing goes to their head or something. I don't know. Yeah, but, I, don't know. I think I think, too, sometimes when someone comes from sort of a working class background, you have a bit of a different mentality towards everything. Definitely. So, you know, yeah, I, it just always impressed me about them because they could have had egos if they wanted to have egos. For you sure. Know, they had plenty of success and, and whatever, but it just, I always tell this story because it's just so Peter, 
that, you know, the first time we met them, you know, we showed up to New London, Connecticut, and we walked backstage and there he's sitting there with like their table of food or whatever. And he's like, can I make you a sandwich? And I'm like, that's so Peter, because he was more concerned with making us a sandwich that, and of course we're like, no, no, no. <laughs> but you know, just that, that, that was how he was and how he treated us. And it's just terribly sad to me that, you know, he's not still here and yeah out because him and Mike, you know, had talked for years about doing a project together and, and, and he, they had actually talked about it not too long before he passed away. So it bums me out so freaking bad that that never happened. Cause I can't yeah. even imagine how cool it, it would be interesting to see what that would have, you know, right. what would have came from it, you know? Yeah. Definitely. So um, never happened. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've, you know, I'm sure like you, you know, like, you know, like about like the whole thing, the fandom and, you know, um, meeting, you know, certain people that are like of certain status or whatever. Um, you know, I've, I've also met a bunch of people too, just along the way by hanging out in the, you know, the New York city scene and seeing people come through, uh, on their way up or whatever it may be, you know, um, and, uh, I actually, I, I have a, a good story, I think. Um, I got to hang out one time with um, with Lemmy from Motorhead, and he was like the super most nice guy that I've ever met ever. He was walked. He was actually he was hosting um, this thing at the Ritz, and it was around eighty eight or something like that. And he just had a heart attack actually, and he was a little bit cleaner, not doing speed. He was still drinking alcohol, of course, you know, stole the rock star. Um, but he was co-hosting this thing with Joey Ramone at uh, the Ritz. And he actually walked into the bar where I was hanging out with my friend, his girlfriend and my girlfriend at the time was coming to meet us. And he walked in and I'm like, oh my God, it's Lemmy. And he's just standing right next to us at the bar. And he starts talking to us and we're just talking because he's like, he's by himself. And he's, it's like a Thursday night before the Friday that he's hosting this thing at the Ritz. And he was just like talking to us for like an hour and a half, like just about like motorhead, anything you could think of just like not affected, no attitude. Yeah. We had at the time a button, like I had a button on my jacket, like, our, you know, the band button. Yeah. Button that me and my friend were in and he took it off my jacket and he pinned it on his jacket oh my god and he's like he's like look he's like you know we're all the same he's like we're all musicians and it was like I mean I wish I was like knew about Hawkwind which I I'm a huge Hawkwind fan now yeah. but like and I didn't start getting into them until like probably like 90 or 91 but like when I met him, you know, of course I like no motorhead. So my girlfriend at the time is coming to meet us. She walks through the door and she's wearing a motorhead shirt. And, and, and he was just like, Hey, or whatever. I was like, Hey, oh on over. Um, let's hang out with Lemmy. And she's like, what, you know? And, and then he comped us tickets to the next night, which is like um, the night that he posted with Joey Ramone at the Ritz. So we got in VIP and everything, but it was such a, of good feeling to meet. I mean, and I've met a bunch of people that like, I 
idolized. I mean, I know you the fandom thing or whatever, but there are definitely people that have idolized. Oh, of course. Um, that that like had been not very nice, you know, or very short, yeah. you know. Like, look, yeah. it's like you know. Obviously, if I'm coming up to you, and I mean, I'm very introverted too. Believe it or not, I can talk and talk, and I get talking, and I'm good. But like, I'm very, very like, you know, I see somebody. Like I have a famous story. I went to go see a show um, at the, it's like the Paramount Theater, which, which basically was um, the Old Fell Forum under Madison Square Garden. And I went to go see with a friend, um, Lenny Kravitz on uh, Mama Said, opening for the cult. It was the cult ceremony. And we were there, um, my friend actually, um, who's now an Alice Cooper band, we used to play with him and he had better tickets than we had so I was like with a friend we were like in 10th row or 12th row he had third row I'm like okay he's like I'm done watching Lenny Kravitz he's like his last song or second to last song he's like I'm I'm out of here I'm gonna go somewhere else or whatever so he gives us the tickets and we walk up to third row and we're standing right there watching Lenny Kravitz and I love Lenny Kravitz and so anyway we're all watching him and everything and like the lights go up and I'm with my friend and she says to me, she goes, Madonna's sitting right behind you. And I'm like, what? And so I was like, okay, I have to say something to Madonna. So like I turn around and I just look at her and she looks right at me. And I was like, I, I just had to say, I, I think you rule. I love you. You're great. You know, I grew up with the first album, huge fan or whatever. And she thought I told her she sucked. And she was like, she's like, what did you say to me? And I said to her, no, I said, I think you rule. And she looked down, blushed, and she said, thank you. And it was <laughs> such a weird, random thing. Yeah. To, and it's like a huge star to have met. And like, I don't normally would say, I mean, I've seen so many people out and I was like, Prince, people like that. Like, I would never go up to them, ever. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way. I would never even say like, hey, you know, I love you or whatever, no. There's no way I'm going to do that. But like, if I'm face to face and well, maybe I'm going to say something, but yeah. you know, I don't know. Yeah. That's, <laughs> funny. yeah. That's funny. So how about this? Um, how did you get into goth music? Like, how did that, what, what, what was the first thing that you listened to? Like what grabbed you? Like I have my story and I can tell it, but I want to hear your story. Sure. So, I mean, it's, really really late to the game probably but when love song by the cure came out that was the first song that really it changed my perspective on like everything prior right. to that i liked music but i wasn't like i don't really care about it you know i mean i liked mm -hmm. like i liked queen a lot and i used to listen to queen a lot but i wasn't like obsessed with it right. and you know at the time like my cousin had sent me a duped copy of like a circle jerks tape and I liked that but I didn't really like obsess about anything but when love when love song by the cure came out that was just it so I got obsessed with the cure and then like we didn't have cable at my house or anything so I didn't have access to MTV or anything like that but mm. my friend did so every time I was at her house we would watch MTV and specifically 120 minutes right so getting into the cure and then watching 120 minutes and, and getting exposed to other things. And then, 
you know, I grew up in rural Ohio, so access to stuff was non-existent. And, but we lived close to Kent, Ohio, which was where Kent State University is. And there's, there's always been a healthy music scene in Kent. And so as we got older and we could like drive into Kent and stuff, and then there was a couple little punk clubs there and stuff like that. And then we met people and then that's how I got exposed to more stuff. So at first I was kind of just into like sort of mainstream stuff, like The Cure, Susie the Banshees, stuff like that, that we would see on MTV and, right. and what, and they were kind of easy to find in a record store. And then when I started meeting people in Kent who were like from Cleveland and like Akron and other places who had access to more stuff like, uh, you know, legendary Pink Dots and Death in June and Swans and all of this kind of stuff. It's like evolved to that. And I got sort of into the more obscure, more difficult to find stuff unless you know someone that knows someone that knows someone, you know what I mean? Right, right. So that's kind of how that started for me. That's but cool. I was kind of a late bloomer to me. Like, again, I mean, I was what, 17, something like that. So, you know, everyone I know is like, oh, I've loved music my whole life. And I got into it when I was like 10 or something. And I'm like, eh, right. I'm 17 and, you right. know, I'm older. But that's my story. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so, I mean, again, um, I don't know. My, my dad um, was a musician. Um, he had Bernard Purdy playing on it on his recording. So he ended up. Bernard Purdy, if you know who he is. Anyway, he was a drummer and he ended up um, being uh, Aretha Franklin's um, musical director. Um, so I had music pretty much in the house since I've been like in the crib. And, um, and just like started listening to, um, at the time, um, we didn't have FM radio in the 70s. Um, because my parents didn't have, they weren't like FM fans. They were like, my mom was like into Broadway stuff. She worked actually in the Schubert theaters on Broadway in the fifties and sixties, had great stories about meeting Paul Newman and all these different, oh you know, God. amazing people that like, you know, would be on Broadway before they would like maybe be in movies and stuff like that. And um, she had a lot of really great stories of seeing people um, before they were famous and stuff. So, uh, so there was, you know, there was that being played in the house, a lot of jazz and stuff like that played in the house. Um, but, you know, I started listening to AM radio because AM radio was in the car. And so AM radio in New York City played everything from, you know, um, you know, like classic rock, like the Boston and um, things that were just in the top 40. So like you'd get Boston and the Eagles, you'd get Donna Summer and Kiss. So you'd get this just weird hodgepodge of whatever was in the top 40. Yeah. So, and then living by New York City too, because um, my mom was originally from New York City. So um, I was right next to the Bronx because my gran grandparents lived in um, basically Spanish Harlem, but it's uh, Washington Heights. And um, so I heard a lot of disco and, and when hip hop started, you know, with Grandmaster Flash and stuff like that, I was already getting it. So when we got MTV, I was 1981, I, we got MTV. Um, we were like one of the first towns, like cable was all like weird back then. So like one town would have a different cable. So one town had Time Warner cable, one town had like cable vision. So like one, 
system would carry MTV, one wouldn't. So actually the town that I lived in carried MTV since day one. So like I pretty much watched it from day one. So, you know, um, as a kid and growing up, um, the town that I lived in, basically, they're all into FM radio. So they're all into like Led Zeppelin, the Grateful Dead, all this stuff. And I'm listening to, you know, I'm watching MTV and getting Duran Duran and The Cure and 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 Depeche Mode. Right. And also Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and things like that. So like and Motley Crue and things. So like, to me, it was all like pop music anyway. I didn't really have any sort of like oh it's this or it's that or I don't really like this it's just to me it was like oh oh that's cool like check that out oh that's cool so I was just like basically sponging all that stuff in and then a friend of mine in 10th grade so for 10th grade for me was 1983 or something like that or 82 um he his brother was a big post-punk fan so he had he had um and also hardcore and punk. So he had things like Crass. He had things like Susie and the Banshees and, um, and Bauhaus and um, Joy Division and things like that. So he introduced me to that stuff. Like Susie, you know, he had like Juju and um, we were listening to Juju Nocturne and things like that. And, um, and then, you know, also I'm getting from, you know, The Cure and all that stuff from MTV. So um, I think that's probably my first um, hearing of anything like that was from him in 10th grade. And then like MTV started playing Spellbound and I started really, that was probably my, it grabbed me. But yeah. I think that really what sucked me into the whole thing was I went to go see um, The Hunger in the theater and the whole Bauhaus intro. And I knew, my friends were into Bauhaus and like, you know, I knew the sky's gone out and some of mask and stuff like that, but I didn't know Bela Lugosi's dead for whatever reason. And then when I saw them do that opening thing with Bowie and then realized that actually that Bowie is an influence on Bauhaus and like how that whole circle kind of works or whatever. And I lo I've loved Bowie since the late seventies and uh, always was a big fan didn't understand a lot of his music until I got a little bit older. It's a little yeah. too, it was a little too sophisticated for me at the time, yeah. um, but, but always loved Bowie. So yeah, so I think the hunger probably really kind of really reeled me into, into liking all that stuff. And like, remember being young and getting the village voice and 83 and 84 and not being able to go to those clubs because I was too young. I didn't have an older brother to take me. I didn't have older, older friends. I had friends that were older that were going and I, I wasn't allowed to go. My parents were like, that's not happening. Yeah. You know, but like everything that was happening there from, you know, Dead or Alive were playing in the beginning and things like even like the romantics and um, I don't know, Bow Wow Wow and just so much great MTV things and these up and coming things that were happening at the time, Duran Duran. And I would have loved to, see, I did get to see Duran Duran, but I didn't get to see them till 84, but like, there was so much- imagine like the access that you had to stuff because, you know, like I said, I grew up in rural Ohio. So it was like, I mean, my parents listened to country, like Southern gospel and bluegrass music and like, you know, top 40 country music and stuff. So I didn't really, know anything that was going on like I, t I tell Mike all the time you know there 
there's Led Zeppelin songs that'll come on the radio that I've never heard before because I just didn't have access to any of that stuff in my house. Yeah. So I can't imagine like being in New York City and the access that you guys all have to just everything. It's totally, totally. I mean, like the, yeah, I mean, even the FM radio stations, like again, I mean, I started listening to FM radio when I started getting into junior high, which is like, uh, I was in junior high, 79, 80, 81. And, uh, you know, all friends that I had didn't know what MTV was and I was starting to watch it and I was addicted to it. I mean, it's like, it was on all the time. It was like, you know, it changed, it changed everything. And watching it was like sort of the same sort of thing. Like people, when they listen to FM radio in the seventies, where they're like, I'm waiting for my song to come on. Or even if you like, you know, pop radio or whatever, you're like, you waited. And it was the same thing with MTV. Like, when are they going to play that Duran Duran video or whatever you were into, you know, and, and, um, and it just, it's just changed everything. And yeah, and having access to FM radio, like friends in high, at junior high school, I mean, they were turned me all on. I didn't know, I was a KISS fan. So like, I grew up on KISS and, you know, I had friends that were in grade school that were KISS fans. Paul in Halloween special in 76, I saw it and it changed everything for me. I, my first concert was KISS at Madison Square Garden, but 79 was the dynasty period. So that's, I was made for loving you and all that stuff. And while, you know, the older kids were like, oh, KISS, they're like, what do you like that stuff for? They're like, that was so 1976 or 77 and now 79. And well, you know, I'm 10 years to 11 years old and being a KISS kid, like loving KISS and Star Wars and, you know, things of the 70s that I grew up on, like 70s TV, like Charlie's Angels and uh, uh, stupid stuff like that. You know, I mean, there's all the stuff, the culture that happened then. Um, but uh, being able to have the access to classic rock and stuff like that, yeah. I mean, like, I didn't know who Led Zeppelin were and friends that lived across the street from me would come and I'd be like playing Kiss Alive too. I'm like, yeah, check out this guitar solo, you know, from Ace Frehley or whatever. And they would be like, no, Jimmy Page actually did that, you know, uh, 10 years before, listen to what he's doing in, in Heartbreaker or something, you know, and they play it back and forth. Oh, oh, I'm getting to see where bands that I loved are coming from, you, you know, and then you go backwards and you go to the Beatles and then, you know, and then Elvis, I was a huge Elvis fan anyway. So like I, in the seventies, like I remember seeing live via satellite on TV and that was 73 and I was like five, you know, and I was just like the biggest fan and just loved this fifties period. And then got you know, the rockabilly period, the fifties period, you know, the, the comeback special where he's all in leather, the whole, the whole 70s thing. He's just like such a quintessential rock star right. guy, you know, like a, it was so, I, you know, to see, I mean, I was supposed to go see him, but then he passed away and sad the whole thing that happened with him. But yeah. um, just, it was, um, you know, he was almost like a, in a way, I don't know. We got, got Jim Morrison, pre- precursor to goth, these dark haired, yeah, yeah, yeah. oddly looking guys or whatever <laughs> you know it's funny that you said that about you know kind of learning things in retrospect so yeah. again back to the whole being in ohio it's like whatever you're like you had to find the influence from someplace so if your friends didn't listen to certain music you didn't know about it because the only real way to get any information at that point was through people that you knew. 
And I was telling Mike today, because he's a massive Killing Joke fan, massive Killing Joke fan, huge influence on him. He's loved him from day one, whatever. So we've, the past couple of days, we've been watching a bunch of Killing Joke, like we rewatched the Killing Joke documentary and we, you know, this, that, and the other. So today while I was working, I was listening to Killing Joke all day and like, Killing Joke, for whatever reason, wasn't in my friend circle. So I never really listened to them. So like Mike plays Killing Joke often. And when I hear it, I'm like, oh, it's really good, whatever. But I I never was obsessed with it as a young person. So I'm kind of learning it now. And I'm like, how am I today years old and am just now getting obsessed with Killing Joke? Like, it's so ridiculous. And I said to him, I'm like, don't you ever hear music? Like you're hearing it kind of new, even though it's super old. Right. And wish that you could just time travel because I want to, like, I want to be into this stuff when it was coming out, not, right. not after, way after the fact, you know, like I want to be there in the first round, you know, right. it's just I such know. a strange thing because, you know, like, I guess being a musician or whatever, people assume that you know a lot about music and I mean I know about what I know about but I don't it, it, it's the spectrum is like small and music is like this you know it is so, but it's just it's funny how you can killing jokes been around forever and right. just getting obsessed with it now it's just weird to me you know I know but the thing is, is that what's great, the good news is, is that like, like you're saying back in the day, I mean, the only way you would really know about stuff would be either like the radio or MTV, if you had it, you know, or friends that were into stuff. Now it's like, go to YouTube, you can go and find everything and you can re re-experience everything. So like, you know, like, you know, like right now there's a huge goth resurgence going on and these 19 and 20 year old kids that are all like talking about like Bauhaus and the tradition trad goth traditional goth gothers (laughs) yeah that are all into this and they're like oh you know you grew up in the 80s and you saw you know x y and z and it's like yeah okay true but like my for my generation like I wish I would have saw what was at the Fillmore East you know what I mean like 1967 like Led Zeppelin opening for Vanilla Fudge Jimi Hendrix I wanted to see that I wanted to see CBGB's I want to see Blondie at CBGB's like in 76 you know the Ramones that's what I want to see and yeah and while I did see bands in the 80s and but you know it's like yeah I saw the Ramones in the 80s yeah okay but I didn't see them in 1976 so It's a, you know, I think we all have that sort of thing where it's like, you know, there's things that you start and and music is so endless. It's really like endless digging. And like, I mean, like there's so many different genres of music that you could just dig forever. And yeah, maybe, I don't know if you could do it in a lifetime. If you're like really like a fan, I know you don't like the word, but like if you are a fan of something and you really want to dig, especially now where the internet is there, you do research. There's just so much stuff that's out there and more and more stuff. And I mean, I tell people that are like, oh, I didn't experience the God scene in the 80s. I'm like, yeah, but you know what though? 
you can live it if you want. You want to be, you want to think this is the 80s, go ahead, live it and go and go on to YouTube and watch the concerts that, that are available to you. And that's just it too, is that, you know, we didn't have access to this stuff. It, like in 1985, you couldn't watch a video that some guy in England took at a Sex Pistols show. There was no way to watch that unless you were that guy and his immediate friends. But now because people have uploaded all of this stuff to the internet, you know, 1985 yep. Pistols weren't playing, but you know what I mean. But, um, <laughs> no, totally. uh, but yeah, it's, it's, Oh, well, totally. I, and it's yeah, like, it's I, amazing, like I, it's intimidating in a way because there's just so much that like, there's so much good new music too, that it, it I get so intimidated by it because you can't know all of it. You know what I mean? I mean, I can't. I know. I'm, it's so intimidating to, I do the same thing with comic books where like, I want to read comic books, but where do you start? Because there's so much right. that I right. end up backing away and just being like, okay, well, I'm not going to even get started because I don't know where to start. But it, it's kind of the same thing for me with music where there's just so much. And so you kind of just stick to what you already know a lot of times. So it's, it's, I don't know. It, there's just it, there's just so much of everything yeah. all the time from movies to books to music everything there's so much information that sometimes it's a bit daunting and like overwhelming and before we move on i want to clarify the fan thing i'm a fan of a lot of okay. things but i don't like anyone referring that to me <laughs> right, I get like, you. Right. I, that, yeah, like when someone says I'm your fan, like no, you're just right. someone who like like listens to our music or whatever, because it almost it, right, it, right, right. It, it puts you on some weird hierarchy thing or something. I don't know, but um, but I'm a yeah, fan I, of a lot. I mean, I, right? I mean, I for me, like what I think about like the word fan is like really like it's fanatic. Like you're actually just such a fanatic of that person's art that's that's really what you are and just like you respect it so much and that's something that really means something to you you know and I know it's like you all of a sudden are being put on this certain level and you're like maybe you don't want to be put it's there so or whatever it may be it like might feel uncomfortable yeah. or it's awkward awkward right me, I'm just the same like weird chubby girl from the Midwest that doesn't know anything about anything. So for anybody to think I'm somehow cool is, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't compute in my, in my brain. You know what I mean? So it just makes no, I gotcha. me feel uncomfortable. That's all. And like to think of yeah, like, like you said, Peter Steele was a fan and I'm just like, no, but he's Peter Steele. Like, no, right. he just liked our music. I, I <laughs> Right. It just makes okay. Sense. Yeah. No. No. Point taken. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, there's so much stuff that's out there. Um. You know, at the, at the times, like again, you know, like I'm a huge horror fan, and you know, horror for me growing up was, you know, what was in the '70s and the '80s. Ooh, you froze.
frozen. You froze up. This is the time in the set when we, in the set, in the show where we take a break while he reconnects to the internet. I don't know what's happening. Do, 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 do. Are you there? Oh, I hope he's going to try to come back in. I'm going to wait a couple minutes and see if he tries to come back in. Did you hear my phone? I have turkeys. All right, my friends, I don't know what happened. I guess he lost internet service. So I guess that's it. We were going to talk about horror movies. Um, hopefully, maybe we'll come back another time and chat again. I was having fun discussing stuff and things. Um, I'm going to be doing more of these. I think I'm just not going to be doing them probably every single Friday, just updating you all, all two of you that probably watch this. I don't know. Let's see. Is he coming back? All right, I'm going to go ahead and go because he's having internet issues. So I will get this uploaded tonight and I'll probably set up something with him to chat again some other time. And I will talk to y'all later. Bye. Mm.